Welcome to RetroTube, the podcast in which a lady from Liverpool and a lad from Lincolnshire introduce each other to some of their favourite archive TV relics. This week it's my turn and I've chosen to celebrate our 19th episode in style with our first standalone one-off special. It's the Beatles' 1967 lavish musical extravaganza stroke aimless fever dream. It's Magical Mystery Tour! Magical Mystery Tour was the Beatles' first post-Brian Epstein project, conceived and largely directed by Paul McCartney in September 1967 and unleashed on the unsuspecting BBC viewing public that Boxing Day. It's well established that we're both a little obsessed with a hard day's night here at RetroTube, and you actually like help more than I do. But Heather, had you ever experienced the delights of Magical Mystery Tour before? I have not. Now, I'm not 100% sure how much everybody knows about my views towards the Beatles. I know you do, but... Uh, conflicted. Not exactly conflicted. I like the Beatles. I, 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 want, I, want, to put, I want to put that out from, from the get-go. Yeah, establish that up front. Yeah, let, let me just Bef- say, folks. <laughs> Before they arrive with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> I've got nothing bad to say about anybody from Liverpool. Well, within reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Depending on who they play uh, for. And also which member of the Hollies they are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I do really like the Beatles. I am not a great fan of anything after Rubber Solo. I am not a Blue Album girl. I am very much a Red Album girl, which when you know you think about my footballing preferences is a little weird. <laughs> also, because the Beatles were weirdly one of the last bands that I got into from the 60s. I am not a person who will listen to any other music from the 60s and be like, ah, yes, the Beatles certainly influenced all of these people. I'm more like, well, all of these people had other influences as well and they were, you know, peers of the Beatles, so probably enjoyed their music too. Um, Mm. I have a less sort of bigger than a casual fan, but not a big fan. This is why I've not seen Magical Mystery Tour. I don't. I'm not really I'm not really into later Beatles stuff. When they stop remembering to shave, <laughs> I kind of know how to Get a nice bit. haircut. <laughs> when it gets to the stage where George looks like a witch <laughs> Just I'm I'm out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry guys. But okay. You're scaring me. <laughs> I like the scary stuff. I don't especially want to do it in the road with anybody. <laughs> I like the hauntological Beatles. None of that. Just play me some proper songs and leave me alone. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So we might be we might be having a bit of an uphill struggle with this one. <laughs> but we shall see. I don't know. I might surprise you. Well, you never know. We'll, we'll find out. So I've been obsessed by the Beatles probably since I was five or six. Uh, I was never that into music. I didn't really like 80s chart music. Yes, before it was edgy and cool to listen to it. Yes, exactly. We had a few records at home. We had Which Is Promised by Jethro Tull, which is a single I absolutely adore now. But at the time, it was a bit grown up and a bit spooky. And we had Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time, album by Simon and Garfunkel. Exactly the same comment for that. I love it now, but it was spooky and unnerving. And it was all about death and 
Uh, just like as a five-year-old, it's like oh, I'm quite enjoying listening to this, but it's freaking me out, man. I didn't really like my parents' taste in music, especially a lot of people who are into '60s music and the Beatles. Yeah, I got it from my parents' record collection, but they were into a lot more adult music. They like Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and that kind of thing, and they weren't especially Beatles fans. But one summer after we went to visit my grandparents in Dundee, my dad bought home his copy of Sgt. Pepper's because although he wasn't a Beatles fan. Everyone in those days who liked music bought Sgt. Pepper, so he had an original Sgt. Pepper. It was the rule, it was the law. Everybody got one with a box of cornflakes. and came on the doorstep with the milk. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Dad's music, Dad's boring music. Oh, you have to listen to Dad's boring music. That's me, aged five. Wow, you were a a great teenager, (laughs) aged five. Yes. By the time (laughs) we got to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I was hooked. I genuinely listened to this album over and over again all day. My mum had a little, we didn't have a hi-fi, we had a little 1960s portable record player that came in like a red suitcase with a handle. I'd take it up to my room and I'd, I'd listen to Sgt Pepper over and over. I was consumed by the Beatles and I got Beatles records for Christmas and birthdays. I never got the Red and Blue album. I must be the only Beatles fan who's never owned nor heard the Red and Blue wow. albums. My first album was 20 Greatest Hits. And then I got all the actual albums after that. I got books. It was very rare I'd actually see the Beatles in motion. So you'd like re- it'd, be, it'd be really exciting when they showed the Strawberry Fields Forever clip or the Hey Jude clip, which were the ones that I mainly remember seeing. It's like, wow, it's the Beatles actually moving and in, in real. In real. Yeah, and it would be almost too much to comprehend. I have been since probably about 1981 obsessed by the Beatles. It's probably my 40th anniversary of being obsessed by the Beatles this year. That's longer than I've been alive, Isn't it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She says proudly. (laughs) So we got our first video recorder much later than everyone else it was christmas 1990 oh wow Christ, that is a lot lot longer after everybody else so it would have been 1991 i think probably with my christmas money or my, i think wh smith's vouchers i bought on vhs magical mystery tour and help great choices they were 20 pounds each 20 pounds each blood me now this was in 1991 i didn't calculate how much oh, that wow, would be wow, but that's Christ. a lot for, for anything I think something that people don't really remember these days is that if you recorded things off the telly with a blank cassette, usually the quality was fine. But ironically, the really expensive shop-bought pre-recorded tapes were often horrible quality, really kind of... The image wasn't sharp, it wasn't very colourful, it just looked murky. And So I got these home, and I think this is possibly why I'm not very keen on help to this day. I was so disappointed. I hadn't seen A Hard Day's Night at this point. This came later. Having paid all that money, they just didn't look good. The Beatles were hardly in either of them that much, really. And I was really disappointed at the time. Oh. I loved the album already. I'd probably Christmas 84, 85, I'd got the album. Hmm. So to me, it's it's a wintry record. It reminds me of Christmas. Yeah, I can get that. From the film, it looks a bit chilly. Yeah, it's filmed in September and they it, it's still sunny, but it, that kind of autumnal sunlight and everyone does seem to be shivering a little bit. In fact, one of my notes on 
think I am the walrus. Yes, I am the walrus. Looks even colder and windier than I need you from help. <laughs> and that's pretty chilly. That is pretty chilly. Poor Ringo stopping in the middle just to have a little shiver. His little <laughs> nose glowing red. <laughs> Yeah, there's a scene that was removed from the finished film. It's a, a scene that John directed, which was Nat Jackie, the rubber man. He's he's an old vaudeville entertainer. He's the one with the Charlie Chaplin moustache. It's his dream where he's judging like a bathing beauty contest. So it's all these girls in bikinis in the swimming pool, this outdoor swimming pool. And they look freezing. They look so cold in the clips. <laughs> They're like hugging themselves. <laughs> so it was not a warm experience. But uh, anyway, so going back to the start, what did you think? think what do you think to magical mystery tour well do you know what i absolutely loved it wow i'm both amazed and relieved yeah no i really did i was expecting it to be a lot weirder because everybody's like oh it's weird you won't get it doesn't mean anything you won't mm. get it nothing really happens you won't get it it'll be weird it's just weird it's just weird <laughs> and i was like oh well i mean i've seen a few <laughs> I've seen a few weird 60s things, I mean. <laughs> you certainly have. I'm a game girl. I'm ready for anything. And, <laughs> and so I went in expecting 33 and a third revolutions per monkey level of weird, right? Right. What I got was Magical Mystery Tour, which is a lot of levels down from that. So it was fine. And honestly, I think I actually did get it. You know, it was just... They were just having a nice day out. Leave them alone. Stop trying to get meaning out of everything. They were just having a nice <laughs> yeah. time. Auntie Jessie was having the best time out of everybody. I was attempting to subtly talk you out of spending £15 on the Blu-ray. I was saying, it's, it's quite a slight film, so you might not want to spend that much money on it, expecting that you'll hate it. But it sounds like not. It sounds like it was no, a good no, purchase. No, no, not at all. It was, it was an investment. Brilliant. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that. There you go. I do like it a lot more than I did when I first saw it, because I have the DVD now, so it's much crisper quality, and it, it does look quite beautiful in many of the scenes. And I'm used to it now. It isn't the shock of this quite a flimsy story and the Beatles not really being in it that much. It's quite Ringo heavy, but the other three don't. Maybe that's why hugely. I like it so much. Yeah, it's got the drummer in it. So much Ringo. <laughs> and he's looking pretty perfect in it, to be fair. Yeah, you it's know. it's peak Ringo, isn't like, it? That entire look is a thing that I am a fan of. It's a lovely pinstripe suit. His hair's looking good. I mean, even, even his muzzy, you know, I, I can mm. cope with that. <laughs> yeah, he's a handsome gentleman one. in this, isn't he? He's, he's, he's having a great time. He's having a cuddle off his Auntie Jessie. He's having a big row with her, so he's, be, he's being all grumpy. I think I'm starting to see why I like it now. Hmm. Richard B. Starkey and his Aunt Jessica are always arguing about one thing or another. Oh, I'm going. Oh, go! Go on. And what with today being Sunday and the weather looking up, you'd think they'd have given it a rest. For goodness sake, will you stop that sitting down? All right, all right, what's your hurry? But no, on and on they go. Good morning, said Richard. <laughs> Good afternoon, sir, said the courier. They were late. Hello, Flo, you all right, girl? We'll sit here. Yes, I'll have the window seat. All right, so you'll have the window seat. Yeah, I love how parochial it all is. It was inspired by Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters and all that kind of thing, so there's this American hippie idea of getting all the hippies into the bus and going on a road trip across America... The idealism of it would be a very different thing where the American version would be all be about the youth and kicking it back against the man and it'd be a, a sign of protest. And Yeah, there'd be a lot of flowers being handed out, a lot of face paint. Yeah, it would essentially be 
Easy Rider on a bus. So it'd be these men with huge beards going, yeah, it's great to be young and all that kind of thing. And Even though we look 50. Exactly, and kicking <laughs> anyone who's over 35. And <laughs> you straights are all square and you squares are all straight and that kind of thing. Whereas the Beatles... And their generation of British musicians were much more generous to all the generations. And we have a whole cross-section of people. We have some proper 1960s little old men, which you don't really see anymore with their disgusting tiny cigarettes and that kind of thing. Great. I'm glad we don't see any of that cigarette activity going (laughs) on anymore. But it's also lovely to see it preserved. It's quite nostalgic. Yeah, it is certainly of its time. So even the ordinariness is quite dreamlike, I think. If it was just full-on trippy the whole way through, it wouldn't be grounded by anything, but the fact that it is very, very working-class Liverpool. It is very much that. Um, I like the the fact that, although the Magical Mystery Tour bus is all done up in a very psychedelic way, you only need to say those, those words and everybody knows what that bus looks like even if you've not seen the film. Yeah. Inside, it's a crappy old coach. (laughs) It really is, isn't it? There's nothing glamorous at all. Nobody's done anything to make it more rock and roll or more out there or more fantastical. Like, outside, yes. Inside, it is just what it is. It's just a crappy old coach that stinks of cigarettes and has no windows to pop. (laughs) No toilet. (laughs) No toilet. It's just... It's the kind of bus that was always too hot and smelt minging that you had to go swimming in once a week from school. <laughs> yes. It, it, exactly that. It, it, in fact, the same upholstery and everything. It really is, isn't it? I don't think they changed the upholstery between the 1950s and the 1990s. I don't think these they did. Buses. I don't think they did. It certainly didn't smell like they did. I really like that about it. I don't think things had really changed much between then and me growing up in the late 70s, early 80s. A lot of it did feel really familiar in that yeah. pokey little tobacconist where uh, where Ringo buys his ticket from John yeah. and, yeah, the grotty little bus and just how ordinary it all felt. Because I did actually go on a Magical Mystery Tour once. Did you? Have you ever been on a Magical Mystery Tour? I have not. Oh, yeah, we went on one from, I guess, Carlton Scroop in Lincolnshire. And the thing Paul says about their Magical Mystery Tours is they always ended up in Blackpool. Ours, we always ended up in Skegness. Oh, here we are in Skeggy. What a surprise. So it was the same thing that like, oh, where are we going to go? But it is, of course, the nearest seaside town always. So (laughs) we did end up in Skeggy. Even though it takes place quite a bit before my time, it felt really familiar and i'm not as posh as you think i am i did all the working class pursuits at the time i refused to back in the day (laughs) i think maybe your butler came home and told you about it (laughs) my new valet (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh before he ran off with a A karate-trained lady in a strange pair of silk pyjamas. Yes, came home. Mr. Leslie, sir, the Sharabang trip was most enlightening today. Yes. <laughs> now I feel like Stephen Fry with your <laughs> So I really like that it opens on these terrace back streets and it's, I think, filmed in Kent, but it could be anywhere. It could be you anywhere. Imagine it's Liverpool or working-class London or something like that. So it, it is very much of that place and time. And you can totally see any two people having a row up a hill like that. Even the Magical Mystery Tour itself, which has a staff of three people, which seems like a lot, actually. It's just a bit cheap and seamy and 
amateurish, which I like. Yeah. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to Magical Mystery Tours. I am your courier, Jolly Jimmy Johnson. All my friends call me Jolly Jimmy, and you are all my friends. Over here is your hostess, that lovely, delightful, delectable Wendy Winters. <laughs> lovely, girl, lovely. And over here, our driver for the trip, that wonderful driver, we hope. <laughs> Alf! Off you go, Alf! There we go, now. Spread it. Fasten your safety belts, please. Away, away, away we go! <laughs> we meet the courier, who's played by Derek Royal, who is most famously, sadly for him, was was playing the corpse in Kipper and the Corpse and Faulty Towers. There's not really a plot. I was going to say describe the plot, but... It's basically, the Beatles have, have got a handful of new songs, and so they sort of have a little a little segment in between introducing them. Ringo and Auntie Jessie are having an argument. The argument carries on onto the bus. Paul starts bothering a lady, and a little photographer chap <laughs> comes up to save her. Well, you know, when I saw your first film, oh, I, yes. I really thought you had something in it. But it was, was about six then, wasn't it? Blue Lady. Lady in Blue, something like that. No, no you, were, you were... I'm myself, I'm 30. But I look a little younger due to a fair old sweater. Which Excuse you, sir. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'd like to play a photograph with the young lady. Do you mind? I don't mind if Miss Gabriella does. Well, Miss Gabriella does. Well, Miss Gabriella does. You don't mind. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Maybe. Well, we won't see you later. Paul was bothering two different ladies. He starts off by bothering the the starlet, as she's described in the fur coat, and then next time we see him, he's hitting on the hostess. Miss Winters, Miss Winters, Miss Winters. I love how sarcastic that sounds. It does sound very sarcastic. <laughs> An entire busload of people being sarcastic all at the same time at you. That's good thing. <laughs> good morning, lads and lasses. My name is Miss Winters. John keeps falling asleep on George and George is not happy about this. John steadfastly continues to stay asleep because that's exactly what John would do. So, yeah, Fool on the Hill we have, which is mostly there to look pretty, I think. It's a very pretty... It is a very pretty video. It looks a lot like the As We Go Along sequence in Head, the Monkeys film, and I think possibly... It does look a lot like that. That was them sort of reflecting that, the, the fact that it's... Paul strolling through these beautiful landscapes at uh, sundown and there's that lovely golden hour sunlight to the whole thing. In fact, the whole film has a kind of golden orange tint to it. It does feel like everything was kind of shot at around about four o'clock in the afternoon. It does, doesn't it? And Paul actually went to uh, France to shoot a lot of that. He just decided to go and he didn't have his passport, but he kind of thought, well, I'm Paul McCartney. So he went and... They let him through because he's poor. It would be great to have that level of fame, not just fame, but sort of global respect that you can just go up to immigration in France and go, hey, I'm in the Beatles. They go, oh, well, come in. Like the doorman in A Hard Day's Night. Just going, oh, it's you. Yes, please. I think Paul McCartney could get away with that. I'm not 100% sure how how much John Lennon could get away with that. This is true. Yes, he's a bit less... He had a bit less of a wholesome image, I think. I mean, Paul knows how to behave. He's had lessons. <laughs> John always comes across 
like somebody you, you let him into your house to use the bathroom and after he's gone you think where's my silver cutlery gone i don't think i would think that i feel that <laughs> is possibly a little a little racist against scousers <laughs> well no i'm just saying that about john lennon if you if you let paul mccartney in and you think oh paul mccartney's taking a long time you go up and you find that he's like petting your dog or something wholesome like that or reading your child a bedtime story but yeah i love the little fool in the hill sequence it, it doesn't further the narrative of them all being on a coach. It is just a music video cutaway. Yes, it's just it's just uh, an excuse to an excuse for all the Paul fans to look at Paul for five minutes. It's, it is really, isn't it? And why not? Yeah. But, yeah, they, they sort of set up this idea of they're going on a coach trip and there are there's magic. It's a magical trip and magic will start to work and they will have a magical time. But they sort of just abandon that idea occasionally and go, oh, here's Paul on a mountain looking pretty yes which is very cool there's also something a little bit uh, reminiscent I would say and it's possibly just me thinking this but the Fool on the Hill video always confused me because like before before I knew about Beatles chronology because it looks like the front cover to Beatles for sale oh yeah it has that sort of autumnal yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of feel doesn't it so when I first listened to Beatles for Sale, which is one of my favourite Beatles albums. Flying the flag for an unpopular one there. I was really confused that Fool on the Hill wasn't on it. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Guys! <laughs> so had you seen the Fool on the Hill clip? I'd seen the Fool on the Hill clip. I'd, I'd seen Fool on the Hill clip and I am the walrus. I have a note, everyone looks bored and uncomfortable. Which I also quite like. I like the fact that... From experience of having gone on these coach trips, everybody is a bored large and chunk of it is being bored and uncomfortable, and needing a wee. <laughs> yes. Why is it that everybody's bladder is so much smaller the second they step onto public <laughs> transport? You alternate needing a wee or being really thirsty, and never you're never quite in the in the zone. It really stresses me out the scenes in this film when they're drinking beer. You're drinking beer on a bus with no toilets. What are you doing? Are you insane? <laughs> I would love to. I would love to see that rant. I would love to be witness to you freaking out at the television. Oh my God! They're drinking beer. What is wrong with you? Drinking beer. The absolute crazed lunatics. And over the bits where they look bored and uncomfortable, um, you hear a a little outtake from the song "Flying," the flying instrumental. So the flying instrumental, I think, is probably about two minutes three minutes maximum on the record but there is a <clears throat> bootleg version which goes on for six and a half years something like that yes which is uh, a lot of it consists of sort of atmospheric mellotron noodling and i really like it i love just sort of being absorbed into that dreamy there's something about the mellotron particularly on that flute setting which is the setting they have for the opening of strawberry fields forever it doesn't sound like flutes it's it's a whole other sound somehow and it's just very magical and strange and dreamlike just that sound and i don't really know why particularly it has that effect but i could just listen to mellotron noodling for hours frankly Ivor Cutler, of course we have. We haven't mentioned Ivor Cutler yet. Oh, Buster Blood Vessel. Uh, who the lead singer of Bad Manners was named after I was wondering was... this while I was watching mm. it. One of the many punk acts like the Ramones. They weren't really a punk act, they were a scar act, but people of that era like the Ramones, named after a Twee Beatles-related thing. There you go. But yes, 
Ivor Cutler. I love Ivor Cutler. He's very sweet. He does monologues called Life in a Scotch Sitting Room, which are hilarious. And he does these little songs, usually playing harmonium in his very dry way. I decided to leave home. As I closed the front door behind me, a sherbet sucker in my hand, (laughs) it started to pour. I stood in the garden, letting myself soak, (laughs) hoping to die. (laughs) The family drifted purposefully to the window to watch. (laughs) The sherbet burgeoned out the bag. I leant to pick it up, encouraged by good-natured shouts from my sister, who had left home twice. I love it. And he did a song for Magical Mystery Tour called I'm Going in a Field, which they removed. It didn't make the final cut. The swines. think that's the biggest shame about the film because having now seen as one of the dvd extras the clip of i'm going in a field i think it actually would have been the heart of the film because it is it's quite a moving little song in a way it just has a quality i think he has a a slightly mournful quality about him Mm. and it's filmed on his white harmonium at sunset and he's in his grey courier uniform singing this mournful lonely song it's a really nice moving little song I think so it's a shame that it's ended up just as an extra and not in the actual film and I I think personally it would be a slightly better regarded film if that was still in there that's my theory you tell them Adam you tell them that's my theory and I'm sticking to it I think he's one of those people that I've encountered but not realised he was a uh, John Peel favourite and he'd crop up on late night shows on BBC Two doing his strange poems and stuff like that. By coincidence I kind of equate him a bit with Vivian Stanchel. Mm. He was one of those eccentrics that you'd see. Apparently people in who lived in London in the 80s and 90s would see the pair of them around occasionally both riding their bicycles. Not together. Oh, what a shame. You see, it would have been better if they had been. And then gone out to try and find the strongest pair of trousers in the shop. So you'd see Vivian Stanshaw with his enormous orange beard with its knots in it and his big octagonal glasses riding around looking huge and then little Ivor Cutler riding around looking awful wee. I like the bits when Ringo and Jesse are arguing and they break character and they just laugh. Yes. You can tell they really, really got on with each other while they were filming this. You can, yeah. And she seems like a really fun character. She appears in some of the outtakes on the DVD as well. And um, there's a bit where she's singing blues songs over the intercom. Yeah. But that man of mine, he doesn't bother to call on me. He doesn't bother anymore. I'm going up the river to see the man of mine. And every time I go, da 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 There's another bit in the restaurant scene where she's 
she's playing jazz drums very well. She plays amazing drums. And I know what you're like with drummers. Yeah. So so when I when I say her drumming is amazing, I'm not saying it lightly. And I'm not saying it as a person who doesn't really know what amazing drumming sounds like. You're a drumming nerd. I am a drumming nerd. So she just seemed like a really fun character to have around. Yeah, she, she was. Just seemed and very I really likeable. liked her dress. You did, yes. I really did. I would have rocked the hell out of that dress. Yes, a vintage 60s dress back when it was just called... A dress. What do you call that dress? Uh, a dress. Arthur. <laughs> so we have a little weird sketch here. We visit Victor Spinetti, who we've met a couple of times in the previous two Beatles films. He's even more highly strung than the director on Hard Day's Night. Possibly the same level of highly strung as the scientist in Help. Haven't you got a degree in Eastern? A plot! I see it now, it's a plot! Give me a bottle of milk and some tranquilizers. <laughs> if you hadn't come back, it would have meant the epilogue or using Welsh for life get him out sorry <laughs> <laughs> i knew this would just descend into the one quoting from a hard day's night right the way and why not the, the beatles don't say much in this so we've got, we've got to have some references <laughs> that's that's right <laughs> george harrison in this film says four words he says it's coming and thank you. Thank you. Victor Spinetti in this, I uh, only recently just discovered whilst researching this, is essentially playing a character that he played in Oh, What a Lovely War on stage. So he did the whole thing of being the drill sergeant who just talks nonsense. And he says it's because he wasn't allowed to use the kind of bad language that the sergeant majors would use in real life. So he invented his kind, this kind of shouty gobbledygook and John had seen his performance on stage and obviously because they were great mates so he said to him oh can you just bring that character along and we'll do a sketch around that so that's how that came about so he is actually just transferring a whole thing from oh what a lovely war i love how he stops in mid-ramp for a photo he does that twice he does i like that that's the same gag john cleese your favorite does that same gag in meaning of life yeah but not as funny when he's playing a waiter i think where he kind of intuits a photograph and stops and poses for it and then carries on yeah that's a nice bit and the, f- the fake cow in the field is quite dreamlike. I also wrote, there's something quite the prisoner about this. I know what you mean. It has that kind of feel, doesn't it? That magical, real, slightly off-centre off from reality kind of feel. And actually, speaking of, of John Cleese, I also wrote, they've moved Paul's desk into the field too, like John Cleese at the start of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Of course, yes, yeah. Paul McCartney playing a character. He's playing Major McCartney. He's sort of of a character. He just kind of sits there, to be fair. He he doesn't really say a great deal. No, he's a little bit posh. And yeah, his setup on the desk, the whole weird conspiracy theory, Paul is dead rumour, which is, of course, nonsense. But he has a sign on his desk which says, I was. People take that as a clue. It's like, oh, he, it's not that he is, he was. Oh, for goodness sake. But it's one of the closest bits to Head, the monkeys film. Head has a similar thing where it's a series of sketches folding into each other. And although they're structured like sketches, they're not funny. 
and they don't really have a point. No. They seem like they're going to have a point. And then they don't. And then they sort of stop and turn into something else. Yes. And that, which is one of the things I really love about that film. It is one of my all top all-time favourite films. But you're never quite sure where it's going to go next. Okay, weirdos. Just what were you doing in there? And this better be straight. You. Fuzzy wuzzy. Uh, in the black thing you met, right? That's right. Yeah, what we were doing in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, uh, first it was, uh, we were in a factory. Yeah. Oh, and then there was a commercial thing. No, 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 it was a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, yeah a vacuum, vacuum cleaner, cleaner right. right. Okay, boys, let's go downtown. But, sir, we were just looking for David Jones. David Jones? Who's David Jones? And I think this is getting close to being a bit like Head. It's not as jam-packed with incident and... It's a bit. This is a bit more freeform and a bit more quiet and empty and easygoing and doing its own thing. It's, it's not. It's not bang 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 with these weird ideas. No. No one gets sucked up into a giant vacuum cleaner. Certainly not. Start. Certainly not. No one is dandruff and Victor Mature's hair. No. I mean, there is a cow, but Davy Jones isn't walking him. No, Frank Zappa. Yeah. Frank Zappa isn't walking the Davey, cow. Didn't he? Yes, this is it. <laughs> and then and then the cow said, Monkeys is the craziest people. It's the craziest uh, people. Uh, mm, yes, mm. I, knew, I, I knew Davy Jones and a cow were involved. <laughs> but this is a similar thing. It's just this kind of little scene. It feels like it's going to either be funny or go somewhere and make some kind of point. But it doesn't really. And then they're suddenly in a field and there's a cow and the desk is in a field. And then this, this line of people from the bus walk past and the people who had been with the Sergeant Major and Major McCartney just join the queue and they all wander off and Victor Spinetti's left screaming at the cow. And so it sort of goes nowhere and it has that kind of dreamlike feel of you're thinking about one thing and then you suddenly get distracted and you're thinking about another and it all changes. It, yeah, it does. Yeah, I like that. Then it just change, randomly changes into a tug of war and uh, it's called the, Mas- the Magical Mystery Tour Marathon because there's all kinds of random things going on there's different sports there's, uh, there's wrestling going on and speaking of the prisoner Angelo Muscat who played the butler makes a little a little cameo as, as a wrestler there's a random game of blind man's buff going on a random sack race a random normal race uh, which ends up in a full on transportation race around a racetrack and Ringo steals the magical mystery tour bus and gets road rage <laughs> he does he's furious I don't even know what he's furious <laughs> at but by golly Bye, golly, Adam. I think he's just very competitive. He's one very grumpy little drummer boy. <laughs> I love that whole... I mean, I think the race goes on a bit too long, but that whole bit that feels like a church fate with the tug of war and the sack race and thing. Yeah. And it's got a Calliope version of uh, She Loves You going on and then it turns into brass band music. And it's so nostalgic. Oh, my goodness. It's like... As someone who grew up in villages and going to these village fates and all those silly little games, the whole thing does have that golden orange tint to it and it's just that particular mid-20th century English feel to it. It's just super nostalgic. At this point, I noted there's a disappointing lack of actual Beatle action. I think outside of the songs, you never see the Beatles all together interacting. No, I don't think you do. I mean, apart from magicians. Yes, that's true. But I, that, even that is barely... John only appears in the later little magician sketches. Well, that's because it was taking him off now to find the sugar, Adam. 
<laughs> Ooh, talk about your magical mysteries. I spent half an hour looking for that sugar, I tell you. They all look. I was half an hour looking for the sugar. <laughs> Is that one for me? Ah, there's one over here, Richie. Oh, how are you, Bonzo? Alright. Uh, any news of the bus? The bus? It's ten miles north on the Dewsbury Road. Oh, and they're having a lovely time. <laughs> they're having a lovely time! I think you never quite know what you've got till it's gone. So at the time, obviously, the Beatles were an ongoing concern, so you could just turn the tap on if you were the Beatles. Turn the tap on, have as much Beatle as you want, or as little as you want, it doesn't matter. So I think it would be easy for them to take Beatleness for granted at that time, so we don't really need to see them all together, because there are plenty of Beatles to go around. But now, 50-odd years later, when there aren't any Beatles... I mean, there are individual Beatles, but, you know, the Beatles is no longer a thing. Mm. It's like, no! Ah, oh, we want more Beatles in this! Just doing anything, just some kind of scene where they're all talking to each other and bantering because they're so magical together. I get exactly what you mean, definitely. I think I would have liked a little bit more of them actually speaking to each other, but they really didn't. If you had no idea about the Beatles or who they were and you sat down and watched this film, once you got to the I Am The Walrus sequence, you would think, A, oh, they're a band, and B, oh, those four that you would have no clue that they belong together. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Oh, right. Oh, I see. Right. Oh, it's there. Right, those ones. So you think maybe it's Magic Alex or maybe it's Mal Evans, who's very prominent throughout because he's so enormous with his bowler hat and his big glasses. Yes. Oh, he's the drummer. He's not just one of the actors. I like the random use of freeze frame and slow-mo that's used throughout the film. So, like the bit at the end of the marathon where... Ringo jumps out of the bus and it goes into slow-mo briefly and then releases again for no real reason. And I like that. There's also a really surreal bit which I like and that's a glimpse of quite how surreal it could have been. George, the photographer, is taking a photograph. They're posing to be photographed, the winning team from the bus. Yes. And he puts his head under the... Because he's using one of those old-fashioned cameras where you have to use the, like, the little veil. He puts his head under the veil and he comes out wearing a lion head. Yes. Yes, I remember that. I thought, that. wow, that's that quite was, surreal. That it's like, why isn't it a bit more like this? I was sort of, I like it, but I was just, uh, I just wanted it to be a bit more, just a bit more like that, a bit trippier, a bit weirder. I was expecting the whole thing to be a lot trippier and a lot weirder, and a lot, I was promised so much more. <laughs> like, can people just not tell me things are weird when they don't know what my what my propensity for weirdness is? You're a pr- fan of the prisoner, so you you've got yeah, you've got a lot of weird capacity yeah that's right that's right but here's a a fun fact that i only just discovered the lion head he's wearing is the uh 1966 world cup mascot head oh well there you go well that makes sense because it was only filmed was it 1967 it was filmed and he was the 1966 world cup mascot george clayden that makes sense it was him inside the lion it's one of those little contemporary references that decades in the future you kind of have to know in order to get it but presumably at the time everyone watching it would go oh yeah it's it's I can't even, I looked up the name of the lion character, but I can't remember it now. But everyone would go, oh yeah, it's the mascot lion from the World Cup. But of course, it being the Beatles, they hired the actual actor from inside the lion to, to play it as well. So it's not just a random little person. It's the actual actor, George Clayton. And to, to be honest, people from Liverpool, 1966 is not so much the year that England won the World Cup, but the year that Everton won the FA Cup. Right, okay. And the other lot won the league. That means nothing to me. Well, 
Well, it doesn't have to. You're not Scouse. Going back to uh, Scousers in the World Cup, my dad went to see England play Brazil at Goodison Park during the, the 1966 World Cup. He saw Pele, and up until like the week he died, he was still telling people about that. Wow. Yeah, it was like one of his proudest moments. Oh, that's really sweet. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he also, one of his other favourite things that he had done, or one of like the, the best events he had been to in Liverpool, this kind of, in a slant ways way, has something to do with the Beatles because he was born in 1935, so he was quite a bit older than the Beatles. And he used to go to the Cavern Club when it was just a normal jazz club and he never forgave the Epsteins <laughs> for ruining his jazz club he never he never never forgave them because he <laughs> he was like I've seen Gene Krupa play at that at that jazz bar wow and then all of a good. sudden pretty... flipping Brian Epstein comes along <laughs> and he gets those flipping rock and rollers coming to my jazz club <laughs> he never never forgave the Epsteins ever Brian and Clive <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to upset Liverpudlians. They'll hold a grudge for quite a while. <laughs> we do know how to hold a grudge. <laughs> and to be honest, we enjoy it. <laughs> I think so. It's a little it's a little hobby. It's the it's the Liverpudlian hobby. <laughs> It really is. I'm not even gonna lie to you about it. Even better if it's against someone involved with the Beatles somehow. It gives it that extra yes. cachet. So Ringo once ran over me foot in his car in 1961. <laughs> I've never forgiven him for that. <laughs> to be fair, Ringo would do that. <laughs> he <people>. would. <laughs> That's also why you love him, because he's so grumpy. Yes. He's the grumpiest of the Beatles. I think maybe that's why Paul McCartney is my least favourite, because he's the least grumpy. <laughs> he's the cheeriest. Yeah, this is why I like Paul. He's cheerful. He's just, he's just a very a very pleasant person. <laughs> he's pleasant and well-adjusted. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's, he's so normal and nice. <laughs> Paul McCartney's never done a thing wrong in, in his life, and I hate well, him. Well, apart for from it. That, those nine days he spent in a Japanese jail uh, <laughs> on I drugs know. charges, he's done quite. They a, don't count. He's done quite a lot of things that are technically illegal, but only technically. Well, also actually, he has had tea. He's had lots. He's of had tea. plenty of tea. Indian tea and biscuits. Colombian tea, homegrown tea. Tea from his dentist. And where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything. It's silly to say that, you know, so I'd rather not say that. They all get back on the bus and your man says, if you look over to your left, if you look over to one side, nothing very exciting is going on. But if you look over to the other side and then flying happens, and it's very psychedelic and it's the worst part of the film by miles. Just absolutely nothing happens. Just no. It, it it's like oh we've got to try and pad this out to an hour do you want a, f a fact yes please this is the same set of footage that was used in the film dr strangelove oh yes or how i learned to stop worrying and love bomb yes so all the aerial footage that they superimposed, or it wasn't superimposed, but it would be back projection, they put the model bomber over. Uh, that's the same, probably not the same actual on-screen footage, but it's the same set of footage that was recorded especially for Dr. Strangelove. They, they nabbed some of it from Stanley Kubrick and his archives. The flying sequence is all tinted different colours to make it more psychedelic. By coincidence, the scenery in the Stargate sequence at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey is also from that set of Doctor Strangelove footage. 
which was tinted a bit more spectacularly because they did a process where it was two different colours, where in Magical Mystery Tour it's only really one colour per shot. So it's it's less psychedelic in the Beatles version because they didn't have the technology, presumably, or they didn't think of it to have it go two colours at once. But this would have gone out in black and white as well, so it would have just been muddy and you wouldn't be able, you'd be barely to be okay. It would have been like watching The Incredible Hulk in black and white. <laughs> it really would. <laughs> no, it would be worse because at least you can still see what the Hulk's doing. That's true. This is just That's you're true. just seeing this some. Is, <laughs> this mud. is just three minutes of the field. Vague shapes in the grey stew. I quite like the song "Flying" these days, or the track. I didn't really enjoy it when I was little because it was just like a instrumental and it trudged along a bit and didn't do very much. Yeah, no, I so get that. So it wasn't really my favourite when I was little, but I really like it now because it's quite evocative. It has all the mellotrons and it's it's nostalgic for the for the time when i was listening to it and not really enjoying it that much but it kind of oh i remember listening to this and hating it oh the good old days <laughs> i have always had a bit of a problem with instrumental tracks i will always skip them always always i quite like them now i've been listening to all sorts all sorts of progressive rock with the lengthy instrumentals it just feels like an intro that just won't that just won't let <laughs> just won't the... quit. It's like if it's like if the rest of the band have had a row with the singer, <laughs> and like the singer always starts and takes a breath. But it does transport me back to playing on my ZX Spectrum forty eight and listening to my Beatles records at home. And I love the Magicians. I'm gonna come out here right now, right here. The Magicians everybody yeah and john does a good job as the narrator he does he does i really like john quite charming yeah um where the eyes of man have never set foot is a definite leninism isn't it i love richie's very panicked where's the bus where's the bus where's the bus paul just tells him to shush rude it's 10 miles north on the Jewsby road only 10 miles away it's only 10 miles away beyond the blue horizon far above the clouds in a land that no one knows live four or five magicians who spend their days casting wonderful spells. Come with me now into that secret place where the eyes of man have never set foot. Read the book. Read the book. I love the magicians. I'm sorry, but I do. The end. <laughs> Again, I like how grotty and parochial their little lab is. It's like a horrible little school classroom. It's the cutest. I love it. And I love them. And I love their robes. Um, <laughs> I love George looking out of a telescope for no apparent reason. If this was an American film, it would be some kind of trippy, far-out drugs den. It might look like it was from Holy Mountain or something like that. It would be really glittering colours and shimmering lights and that kind of thing and possibly belly dancers. Definitely belly dancers. This is just a grotty science lab in some horrible secondary school somewhere. And it's great. It's the closest thing to a plot that happens. <laughs> it is, isn't it? There's the question that sets up the plot. Where's the bus? There's the conflict when nobody says where the bus is. And then there's a resolution when we find out that it's 10 miles north on the Dewsbury Road. It's an entire plot. <laughs> yeah. After that, we have Buster's Dream. Yes. Which I think is really sweet. I love it. It's Ivor Cutler romancing Jesse Robbins on a beach. I'm so here for it. He draws a big heart. He draws a big heart around her in the sand. 
and there's lots of kisses and cuddles and it's adorable and it's genuinely romantic and tender and it's not played. And they both look really happy. They are both really happy and there's a beautiful orchestral arrangement of All My Loving. Yeah, you can say it's not played to mock the fat lady or anything like that. Oh, look at her, she's she's got a boyfriend. No, it's not. It's, it's not like, oh, the middle-aged fat lady has pulled the skinny bald man. It's not like that at all. It's like these two cute kids have found each other and they've fallen in love straight away. And it's it's just adorable. And the way he says that he loves her. I love you! I, I love you! And even that ends with a sort of dreamlike thing where just people are running past camera. Just lots and lots of people. Just dozens of people appear out of nowhere running from left to right past the camera. And then it cuts to Ivor Cutler at the front of the bus speaking of the intercom. I am concerned for you to enjoy yourselves within the limits of British decency, which is a line I still use, and the trouble is it doesn't make sense to people if they don't know the reference, so if I'm wishing somebody a happy birthday, I say, oh, have a nice birthday and enjoy yourself. Within the limits of British decency, then (laughs) this makes me sound awful. (laughs) (laughs) I am the courier. Good morning, men. And women, welcome. I am concerned for you to enjoy yourselves within the limits of British decency. You know what I mean, don't you? Well, don't you? Yes, Mr. Blood As well as more Beatles, I want more Jessie and I want more Ivor. I think so. I will completely agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I could take or leave everyone else on the bus. Yes, except for those six. But then it goes into I Am The Walrus. I Am The Walrus is one of my favourite Beatles songs, even though I have made a massive point about not really liking later Beatles stuff. <laughs> there, are, there, there are a handful of later Beatles songs that I like, and this is one of them. Because none of the lyrics make any sense. It's like a Michael Nesmith song. It is, yeah. But with added Shakespeare. King Lear is my favourite Shakespeare play. Oh, really? I, I'm such a Philistine, I only know it from I Am The Walrus. Wow. What? Is he dead? You really need to... Sit you down, father. Rest you. You really need to get on that. You are missing out. Shakespeare is great. You'd like him. That was all taken live off the radio as they were mixing the song. It wasn't, It wasn't lined up, so where the voices appear to be answering what John is singing that's pure coincidence well that's useful isn't it when he sings I am the Eggman and they go are you sir that's pure coincidence that is great it's like um, when Steve Marriott recorded the Universal in his back garden and his dog started yes. harmonising they do and they're barking in the rhythm in time, of yeah, the song yeah. it's Seamus yes well you won't believe me to get sorry <clears throat> yeah we'll, we'll just go into small faces land now it doesn't <laughs> take right. a lot. I am very easily distracted <laughs> with other 16 fans. There's a lovely little moment at the beginning of I Am The Walrus where Paul and George exchange a glance and they have a little giggle. Yes. And you sort of, in the later Beatles, you hear so much about Paul and George being a bit antagonistic towards each other and George being a bit sniffy about Paul generally, that it's just lovely to see them share that moment. They had a little grin and then Paul... Huge Ringo in. Yeah, which I love as well, his, yeah. his dramatic point. The ending is extremely strange. That weird costume where the people on the bus are wearing the Eggman costume, where they're wearing those white caps and they're all in that sort of Big long, 
big white sheets and they're all marching in a strange way and they're all wearing really serious expressions and that's really trippy. Yeah. And it's very, very odd. And is it, uh, is it Derek Royal at the front? I couldn't quite recognise who was leading it. But yeah, he's wearing a very strange expression and doing a strange arm movement. I feel that the film should be building. Like it should be getting stranger and stranger and stranger. It's this is my feeling about if I was doing it, how I how I would be structuring it. The way Paul structured it was that he got a circle and divided the circle up into segments and said each of these segments is something that's going to happen. But I think I would have structured it in a linear fashion that you'd start here where everything's normal and as the magic starts to exert its influence then things get stranger and more unreal and a bit more unsettling and so that final image with all the people on the bus dressed in that strange white human centrepiece sort of costume all snaking off after the bus and the Beatles are doing their dance behind it in their animal costumes and then those superimposed fountains of flame and the close-ups of the people eating the chips and the chip shop and that kind of thing. It's all getting weirder and weirder but then it just cuts back to normality on the coach and yes. my personal feeling is I would have loved to have seen it just grow and, and become more and more strange and just until it just the whole thing disintegrates at the end. Yes, it does. I would probably put I Am the Walrus nearer the end of the film, or even at the end of the film, after building towards it. Yeah, I would agree. I think it would have suited being the finale piece a lot better than Your Mother Should Know. I would, probably controversially, I would put Your Mother Should Know at the beginning. Yeah, see that and that's your nice mainstream song and dance number and then we go into the story and Mm -hmm. then we build towards this kind of absolute breakdown of reality where it's just the bus driving off into this almost apocalyptic vision with these superimposed spouts spurts of flame whatever that is with the people on the bus in this weird costume and they're behaving in a strange way and the Beatles are all transformed to animals and they're doing their dance and the wafting policeman and all that kind of thing and then this this bleak airfield and that's the end of the film and they've all just gone off into this crazy Hodorowsky-like finale mm. but they didn't have Hodorowsky in mind and they hadn't seen it yet possibly if John had seen El Topo by that stage he might have had different ideas but I think that was a bit later I might be wrong I think that's 68 or 69 El Topo but he got very into El Topo and he helped finance Holy Mountain, which is a strange, strange film. Is it an actually strange film? Or is it strange like Magical Mystery Tour Strange? It's an actually strange film. Okay. El Topo I don't like. It's a Western, it's very unpleasant. But Holy Mountain's a lot trippier. And very, very weird. Very, very weird. I recommend it to people who like really, really, really disturbingly weird films. Oh, disturbingly weird. Right, fair play. I think we were up to John with little Nicola. She's played by Nicola Hale. And this is John John's little moment where he gets to be charming and lovable. He is charming and lovable in spades in this scene. He's adorable, frankly, which is not a word that is often used with John Lennon. No, and you're notably not really a John Lennon fan. I am a George and Ringo fan. You are. Then John and then Paul. Blimey. <laughs> but, <laughs> but kind of George and Ringo and then the other two. Right, okay. <laughs> That's fair enough, I think. That's that's fair. They, yeah. they need the love. I spent a really, really long time trying to figure out who my favourite Beatle was, and then in the end, I was like, "Do you know what? I think I think I'm Scouse. I'm allowed to." <laughs> so that, that's that's why I know I know I no longer have any guilt of having two Beatles. <laughs> she reminds me of Katinka and Taru from The Fall. 
You won't know what that means, but I'm saying it. Well, thank you for saying it. And George looks a little uncomfortable, like he doesn't want to be there. Yeah, I feel that. John gives him a balloon and he goes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then George lets the air out of the balloon in a squeaky way. Whoops, George, George, George. Whoops, George, whoops, George, George, George. Thank you. Have a guess. (laughs) No. Have a guess. No. I don't know. I feel like if, if if John Lennon had his face in mine shouting, have a guess, I think I would be all like, no, thank you. No, I, don't want to, I don't want to guess. I don't want to she guess. takes it in the spirit as intended, luckily. Well, what about five little dicky birds sitting on your head? One named Charlie and one named Fred. Yeah. Do that one, then. Okay. Five little dicky birds sitting on your head. One name. Jolly, 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 jolly. Whoops, jolly, whoops, jolly, 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 jolly. Can you do that one? Two, yes. Two, yes. 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 I've got a present for you. Do you know what it is? Yes. Have a guess. Yes. Go on, have a guess. Yes. Have a guess. Yes. Have a guess. Yes. I, I probably would have cried a little bit. <laughs> oh. Next, we have one of the high points of the film, I think. Jesse's dream. Really? Mm. I hated this bit. Really? Oh, I love this bit. What is it you didn't like about it? I love the bit where Ringo starts shouting at her and then they both start falling about laughing. Yes, like, that I is I love that bit. That, that was nice. hilarious. Now, shut up! Shut up to me! I've had enough of it! I can't stand it anymore! I'm getting off! Off! Don't get historical! I can't deal with anything food related oh. in films anyway. It make it knocks me right, sick. Right, okay. Uh, so like the fact that just this mud stuff kept on being piled onto the table. John's very creepy grin. Really didn't like that, and like she had all her hands in, and it just it made me, it just really made me feel sick. I right, okay. I, like I can't. You've a bit of a thing, and you know how much I love Terry Jones. I can't deal with Mr. Creosote. Oh no, I can't. That you know that. I mean, I don't mind food, but vomiting. I can't cope with anything involving any. It wasn't even Jesse with all of the gloop. It was other people eating while all of this was going on, and also how distressed she seemed because she couldn't stop crying. She couldn't. She yeah, didn't she like can't get a breath. Going, I found it way too distressing. Wow. All of it. The only thing that I really liked in that scene was the big lipstick mark on um, Mr. Bloodvessel's head. <laughs> yeah, that's Because I, that I thought that was the sweetest thing. <laughs> yes. Right in the centre of his forehead. Yes, that was lovely. <laughs> I like it because, well, for many reasons, I think it's one of the best authentic-seeming evocations of a dream on film because it is an actual dream that John Lennon had. He came in one morning and said to Paul, I had this dream last night where... I had this shovel and I was shoveling spaghetti onto a woman's table and Paul said, right, we'll, we'll do it. So they actually filmed his dream as he remembered it happening. I think it, it does that sort of dream logic very effectively. So her dialogue is quite disjointed. The conversation doesn't... It sounds like a conversation, but it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't connect. This time I mean it! <laughs> I, I can't breathe anymore. It's too much. All this mud in 45 minutes. I can hardly get my breath. It's intake, Jesse, not output. I am, I am. I am already. Three times this week already. For goodness sake, Jesse, sit down. Remember. 
I don't care. This is the way he would have wanted it. The fact that it's filmed at night in this big space, there's no ceiling on the restaurant. It's in this big aircraft hangar on the airfield where they filmed the uh, I Am The Walrus sequence. Oh, right. So a bit like some of those Monty Python sketches where they are outdoors at night and they've just got the big floodlights on. So everything's too bright, but it's also at night. Like the, um, the salad days scene where it gradually gets darker and darker as it gets more and more horrific. Yeah. And all the weird things happening in the background, the, the distant mumbled conversations where you can see people in the distance talking, but you're hearing it as if it's up close. Yeah, having a dream and John Lennon is in your dream. I mean, that's quite dreamlike. That's the only time you'd actually get that happening is if it's in a Beatles film. But I imagine there'd be lots of people who have dreams that John Lennon is randomly in. Yes. I was in this restaurant and there was a waiter and he was John Lennon. And he just kept on piling stuff onto the table. And then the bit, you just see this cutaway of George the photographer. He's in some kind of box that's hanging and it's swinging from side to side. There's the cow on the wall of the restaurant and then there's the couriers on the wall of the restaurant as well and he's got his shirt off and he looks all muscular. Yes, there's a lot of semi-naked people, which is just unhygienic for <laughs> any place serving food. It gets dream reality down quite well. I see what you... Yeah, I I totally get what you mean about the whole food thing. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And knowing that it actually was a dream makes it make a little bit more sense Yeah, in a weird roundabout way. But just no, no, I, because I originally watched it yesterday um, when all my troubles seem so far away. <laughs> and then I watched it again today and watching it again today, this was the scene that I was least looking forward to watching. Right, okay. But it's only a dream. Oh, this is my other thought, actually, about these things, that I would have no dreams in it. I would have all this stuff being real. So this would be part of the magic and it be part of things becoming more surreal and reality breaking down i would have all these things happening but i would have them actually happening that this is the the real coach passengers going through this experience leading up to the i am the war sequence yes (laughs) although there again everybody does kind of have a little nap on a giant coat trip like that but then finally she does wake up which is great and everybody's walking through a field and john is no business like show business no business, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's a typical Scouse dad, bad <laughs> Lancashire accent that sounds yes. like it's a Yorkshire accent. Yeah. Like, don't really know what anything outside of Scouse sounds no. like, but I know this is still sort of northernish, so I'm going for it. Yeah, my dad had the exact same voice. Oh, really? One, it's, the a, it's exact a thing, same is it? Voice, yeah. You hear John so often with that Lancashire accent. Uh, yeah, dad, dad had the exact same one. Take this, brother, may it serve you well. Every one of them knew that as time went by, they get a little bit older and a little bit slower. All of them. It arrives in an envelope when you're six months old. <laughs> it's your fake Lancashire accent. <laughs> <laughs> and they have this little walk across the field and then everybody gets into a two-man tent. Yes, I really like that. Which turns into a like a, an old school gymnasium where they've put loads of chairs up and then put a screen up watch a film it's quite a basic silent film gag that lots of people go into a small tent and end up somewhere else but i think in the context of the film it's another glimpse of how surreal it could have been it's a a nice little trippy surreal moment where they they just bend reality a little bit and it goes straight into blue jay way well there's a little bit of antics apparently there seem to be extended antics in some of the outtakes where derek royal and the lovely starlet whose name is maggie wright she was in uh, man in a suitcase she played a character called anita oh but i couldn't i couldn't find which episode she was in but she plays a character called anita let's have a quick look so i've got her up 
whether she was just like a bit character, I don't know. No, because the name the name does ring the bell. Oh wait, she's in Day of Execution. Oh, she's the girl in the car who says Mariaki. So that's why she looked familiar, because when we did on our Man in a Suitcase episode, I described her, him being trailed by the glamorous girl in the car, and she looks familiar from somewhere. And that's where she looks familiar from. Uh, Derek Royal and Maggie Wright, have a th- they do various antics and routines at the, the front of the audience, and the, the only one we really see is she jumps into his arms, and then he just drops her on the floor. <laughs> straight on the floor and she looks a bit nonplussed he'd simply just released her and she's plunged onto the floor (laughs) and everyone laughs uproariously at her discomfort i can't understand why i don't remember it because i literally just watched it before we started recording and i don't remember that bit at all gosh i know what's wrong with me i was paying attention and everything yeah and it has the organ music which i like that kind of sort of slightly comedy organ music uh, which I think is quite evocative. It, it evokes. Uh, well, we'll get into that because I've I have words to say about Blue Jay Way. Okay, can you please say them? All right then. Well, what did you think to the Blue Jay Way sequence? I'd never heard Blue Jay Way before. Wow. There are a lot of Beatles songs that I haven't heard. I always feel like I haven't heard the majority of Beatles songs, and then like I speak to people who call themselves Beatles fans, and I know songs that they don't know. So. I don't really know how much of the Beatles back catalogue I know, but I know it's not all of it. <laughs> Blue, <laughs> but Blue Jay Way is definitely one that I have not heard before. Yeah, I feel so bad that I'd never heard it before because I, I thought I, I thought it was such a lovely song. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and I, I really like the whole double bass scene where Ringo was playing double bass and then Paul was playing double bass. And you get to see the Beatles interacting and larking about together and it's so nice. They were larking about. Prancing about in George's garden. I think it's George's garden. It's either George or John's garden. I can't remember. I think it's George's because it's his song. And they're pranning about and prancing and having a great old time. I'm glad you like Blue Jay Way because I think it's a really underloved song. It's one of those songs that you won't hear many people say oh yeah it's my favorite that's a real classic that one i love that song people go oh it's a bit boring it's george it goes on a bit it's a bit slow sort of organs um i love it as well it's one of my favorites yeah i i really really i really liked it in fact i had the exact same i don't get many people saying that this is their favorite beatles song about your mother should know in fact that was that was a note i made <laughs> it's a largely inoffensive song, and but nobody seems to say, "Ah, I love your mother should know." And I do. Isn't that strange? Yeah, it's one of my favourite Paul songs. Certainly wow. of the Beatles catalogue. I kind of divide Paul's Beatles catalogue and his solo catalogue as two separate things because they're both so huge in their own way and both quite different. So I think everyone, and I would say rightly, adores and raves about "I Am the Walrus" and the "I Am the Walrus" sequence here. I think the Blue Jay Way bit is my favourite bit in the film. Yes, I I would agree with that. Partly because I really like the song. And I do get why people don't like it, because it's another one when I was little, like Flying and like Within You Without You or uh, Revolution 9, that I was like, oh, it's a bit boring. But now they're not so much Flying, actually, but Within You Without You, this one, and Revolution 9 are all among my favourites. And it's so... I didn't want to talk too much about the actual music in this, but I will about Blue Jay Way because it is so underloved. I think it's sort of the heart of the film. It's the most that feel... It has that feel of a dream of off-season seaside towns. The whole album 
for me evokes off-season seaside towns. It's a bit chilly. It's a bit sort of a half-remembered dream somebody once had of going to the seaside. It's a song about America, and it's the most English-sounding song about America you'll ever hear. It's such a capsule of Englishness, I think. And those organ sounds... And it, yeah, it's, it's a bit like dipping in and out of sleep in a way. And the video is a bit like dipping in and out of sleep with all those freeze frames, yeah. just the sudden freeze frames and the f- crossfades and the picture quality when they're in the garden. It's kind of bluish, like when you get to those little out of the way shops and they've had the same photograph of ice creams in their window for 20 years and all the colours have faded out except for blue yes it looks a bit like that and then you've got mal evans with magical mystery boy written on his torso sitting in front of a projector ah, right. yeah 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 i wondered who that was <laughs> yes it's mal and jo- john's on a rocking horse which is a really dreamlike thing so the whole thing feels like like an old abandoned seaside arcade yeah i see, I, I do see where you're coming from I didn't get that when I was watching it, but now you've said it, I can understand where you get that vibe from. I have 40 plus years of, no, not quite 40, I have around 35 years of experience with this song, so there's a whole nostalgia attached to this as well. Before I ever saw the film, I just had the album and then the booklet, which is very strange in itself, which sort of tells the story of the film, even though it doesn't really have a story, but it's quite odd. And then finally seeing the film and this whole sequence out of all of it just fit my expectations and my thoughts and feelings about that song they fit it perfectly like it couldn't have been a more perfect evocation of how the song sounds to me so i don't know if it came across but i like it do you <laughs> yes I, I wasn't sure if i'd made that part clear <laughs> i got to see some george i got to see quite a lot of george that was really nice and he's playing a busker he's got a chalk keyboard that he's playing and he's got and he's yes, got his I thought that his was cap very very cute to collect the money and the slogan he's written is two wives and kid to support which i like as well it's typical george harrison humor there it's very cute and i was a big fan of that i think pro- probably one of the reasons that george is my favorite beetle my joint favorite beetle with ringo is because i always kind of look forward to his songs i do you kind of know what you're really going to get from a Lennon and McCartney song. I say that with a lot more respect than it sounds. You know that it's going to be a Lennon and McCartney song. Yeah. It's just going to be what it is, right? But George's songs, even the songs that Lennon and McCartney wrote that George sang, like I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, there's no other song on the album like that. Everything George did was just so different, like even on With The Beatles, Devil In A Heart and uh, Don't Bother Me, completely different to any other songs on that album and I would would stick my neck out and say probably the strongest songs on the album. I find it really weird that people dismiss Don't Bother Me because it's the first song that George ever wrote and he didn't really, he didn't write another one for another three albums certainly one that made it onto the album and everyone goes, oh it's George's first attempt it's a bit rubbish but he did his best I really like that, I think it's a really good song it's catchy, like it. it's well structured yeah it, there's nothing wrong with no, it. No, it's got a good all. melody. It, it's in that disco scene in Hard Day's Night, and you don't think well, that's a that's a naff song. It's got a few hooks in there, so it's... it has, and um, it's a little bit grumpy. <laughs> it's quite grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's almost this, this Beatles law where you have to think certain things about certain songs, and I don't want to dismiss people's opinions. I, 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 there will be lots of people who don't like that song for valid reasons, but I do also think there is a little bit of of like, oh, don't bother me. We won't bother thinking about it because it's a bit rubbish and it's not at all it's a, it's a wait it's not a bit rubbish 
It's good. Let George live. So then we have our second visit to the magicians, where we get to meet John wearing the black wizard outfit. Another one of the um, linchpins of the whole silly Paul is dead thing is the fact that in the Mother Should Know sequence at the end, they're all wearing carnations and they all have a red carnation, except Paul, who has a black carnation. Uh, uh, uh. And they... Oh my God, that means that really means he's dead. I didn't really... <laughs> and they conveniently ignore the fact that all the magicians are wearing red outfits apart from john who's wearing a black one uh, 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 that must have mean he was still alive at this point i don't know the funniest paul is dead proof point i hope you heard the inverted commas yeah, of course yes <laughs> of course is that on the front on the front cover of abbey road there's a beetle a little beetle car and the first three letters are lmw which they decided stood for Linda McCartney weeps. Oh, really? I, I don't think I'd heard that one. There's so many. And then it says 28 if, because he would have been 28 if he was alive, even though actually he was 27. But they can't get a little detail like facts get in the way of their bizarre <laughs> theories. Exactly. <laughs> then we get to the drunken accordion sing-along. I love that. Did you? <laughs> now, you see, this evokes nostalgic things for me. Even though I nobody in my family knows how to play an accordion. Yeah. But any kind of a family sing along. When Irish Eyes are smiling is definitely in there. <laughs> and certainly Al John Al Jolson songs, at least two. So Toot Toot Tootsie Goodbye and when the red red robin goes bob bob bobbing along. Then I will I will bust out my Al Jolson impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> which which is surprisingly accurate. I won't bore anybody with it right now. I wrote they only know Irish folk songs or Al Jolson songs, so it's the average Big Scouse night in, really. It's very much that to me. Like I wouldn't have imagined any other songs happening in in a Big Scouse sing-along. Yeah, I, I think this was Paul McCartney's whole ethos, really. A lot of rock stars, particularly that sort of time in the 70s, I think wanted to escape their roots and go out into the big glamorous world of showbiz. But Paul, in particular, was always very grounded and he wanted his... Like the cover of Sgt Peppers, he wanted to look like one of those floral clocks you got in the park. And it was all about recalling his youth and his childhood growing up in Liverpool and making that psychedelic rather than going, screw you guys, and then make, you know, building psychedelia from other ex- newer experiences. Yeah, I have to say that is that is a thing that I've always liked and always respected about Paul how much he sticks to his scouse roots. I was watching a, um, now which one was it? It was the James Paul McCartney, I think it's 1973 special he did for TV, which contains a very lengthy pub sing-along. He goes to his local pub and he meets his dad there and lots of family members. Aww. And they just have a, a very long, looks like extremely drunken scouse sing-along in this pub. And yeah, you can tell he just really loves that environment of having his whole friends and family around him. And they're just doing that. They're just all having a sing-song. Yeah. So I think that's suffused through throughout his whole, whole ethos. The song Red Red Robin has different context for me because it reminds me of the film The Conversation. But then I'm not from a big scouse family. No, you're missing out. And it's what, one, of me, one of me dad's favourite songs. Oh. He wasn't really into music, my dad. And I know I'm talking about my dad so much in this. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to. But no, it's quite, it's quite all right. I think there's just a, a lot that makes me think of him. And her, uh, anyway. Yeah, I think it is deliberately going for that nostalgic. Yeah. We all went on holiday to Ireland uh, when I was about 18. and it, We went to a small town called Karshaveen, 
which is right 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 in the southwest like right on the on the ring of Kerry beautiful beautiful part of the world it's one of those places in well one of one of those places in Ireland which is like all of the places where it's like a pub and a pub and a pub and then a dentist and then a pub and like a butcher's and maybe a corner shop and then on the next road there's a pub and a pub and then at the top of the road there's a church and one night we were going we, we went to one of the many many pubs there was a great band and they were called Eicht, which is uh, Gaelic for listen. And they were amazing. They were brilliant. And before we realised what the time was, it was like it was well past closing hours. So we we found ourselves in a lock in in this pub. Wow. Yeah. Because dad went to the bar to get everybody. He actually <laughs> dad actually got up to get everybody a drink. So he must have been having a good time because dad was <laughs> dad was very, very Methodist when it came to alcohol. Oh, right. OK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he, he offered to buy everybody a drink. He went up and he ordered around and the barman said, no, we don't take money here. Wow. And we all just sort of like sat and we were all singing along and it was and it was great. And after every single song. I'm sorry, I'm getting all emotional. That's all right. Dad just started slapping on the table and going, well. <laughs> and that was his reaction to every single song. And he he just had the best, best time ever. Oh, that sounds lovely. Uh, and so this um, this whole sing-along on the coach just makes me think of that. It was lovely. It was lovely. It was a really, really nice memory. Oh. Do you need a moment? No, I'm good. You carry on. Yeah, it's it's a nice little bit. I like Ringo's slightly demonic and over-enthusiastic when Irish eyes are smiling. He does. I like Baring that. his teeth into the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, lo- I love how Ringo doesn't overact anything ever. <laughs> his reaction is always normal. <laughs> <laughs> the only person who overreacts more than Ringo is Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. In particular, the bit when they go into the screening room just before Blue Jay Way and Paul's reaction to finding himself not in a tent but in this room mm. is so overplayed, it's hilarious. <laughs> he's really mugging it up. He's super shocked. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, what? <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Another mo- note I made about the film in general is that it has the feel of a feature-length BBC sound effects record. Yeah. I'm glad that makes sense. That wasn't just me <laughs> just being well random. No, 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 no. I 100% know what you mean. Very much, very yeah, much. I, I get I'm glad that. that makes sense. <laughs> Maybe I'm just fluent in Leslie. <laughs> so after the big, big sing along on on the bus, the lads all go with Jolly Jimmy to a gentleman's club where the Bonzos arrive and they sing Death Cab for Cutie. Bonzo Dog Band. Yes. Someone's gonna make you see I love the Bonzo Dog Band almost as much as I love the Beatles, so I'm very happy about this. Yes, same. I prefer later Bonzo Dog Band when they're a bit more psychedelic, a bit more psychedelic and a bit less pastiche. I think Vivian hadn't quite flowered into his full absurdist self because I, th- I do think it's a bit of a shame that this film has three of the great absurdist minds 
of the era in it, John Lennon, Ivor Cutler and Vivian Stanchel, and it doesn't really use any of them to their potential, or at all. Yeah, it's not really absurd enough. No, you could have unleashed any of the three of them, or all three of them, and just had something utterly mind-blowing. And, yeah, Vivian, I think, wasn't quite at that state. He might have been, but certainly in terms of what he was putting onto records, it wouldn't be until Donut in Granny's Greenhouse when you'd get... That was quite a magical mystery tour, because it has all these little monologues about... In 1945, I bought my wife a new electric iron. She's been using it every day, and it's never once needed repair. And that kind of thing. He just says these little, I think in his case, slightly contemptuous. Whereas with Paul, it's celebratory, and with Vivian, I think it's quite contemptuous. (laughs) Sort of snippets of ordinary working-class life. Yeah. In September 1937, I bought my wife a new electric iron for eight and sixpence. She's still using it every day and it's never needed repair. Given a year, I think he could have fit right in and been a part of it, but as it is, he's he's just brought on to do his Elvis pastiche. But he is charisma personified. He is. I think out of out of all of the bizarre things that happen in this, and I don't so much know if any of them can really be classed as bizarre as opposed to just little incongruous uh the incongruous mystery tour <laughs> it doesn't have a ring to, same <laughs> ring to it does it <laughs> well it kind of is really to be fair <laughs> um but this this is the closest it gets to bizarre because the bonzos are there faithfully singing death cab for cutie having a lovely time all of them are wearing well three of them are wearing masks which i don't like but i did know which one was legs larry smith because i can spot a drum at 50 paces which saves me a lot of time. And while they were, they were all doing this, and just, just valiantly attempting to get a song performed, Jan Carson comes along and does a striptease. It's family show, guys. <laughs> but she doesn't realise, so she she gets a kit off. The thing I liked about this striptease, yeah. and I, I totally heard the tone in your, yeah, you don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please, God, let her say something that's not too controversial. This is controversial. going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> John and George are sat together at, at the front. Although John looks how he would imagine somebody to look at one of these places. George genuinely just looks like he's examining amoebas underneath a microscope. <laughs> he's kind of a cross between baffled and disinterested. My note was the exact opposite. At the very end, after the song has finished, George looks the happiest I've ever seen him because he's just seen the Bonzos play. He's just, oh, I've seen the Bonzos play live. Check me out. I'm the luckiest boy in the whole world. Here's a 60s TV question for you. Uh, would people have been familiar with the Bonzos at this stage from Do Not Adjust Your Set? I would imagine so, yeah. So they weren't just some random band, no. some random weird band. It's like, who are these guys? It was, oh, it's the, it's the guys from Do Not Adjust yeah, Your Set. Yeah, Do like Not Adjust Your Set was, was pretty popular at the in fact, it was so popular because it, it had originally been. It was originally recorded as, uh, and we'll probably discuss this a little bit more in a later show. It was originally pitched and recorded and made as a kids' show. Then they discovered that people were finishing work early to come home and watch it. So they were like, "Well, uh, let's just not let the economy go under. <laughs> let's just switch it up to prime time instead, eh?" <laughs> The other guest band for the film was Traffic. They did Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, but that was cut out. And I can actually kind of see why, because it's not a very interesting sequence. 
it's all right as a standalone traffic music video, but it's very much like all the other 60s music videos. It's four musicians doing some slightly surreal things very slowly. They've got a huge globe. And, like, Chris Wood's got a bit of rope around his leg and stuff like that. I can't remember. But they're just doing some standard 60s pop music video things quite slowly. And I, I can, it doesn't connect with anything to do with the, the tour. So, I can, yes, I can understand why that one was excised. And then it's your mother should know and then it all finishes. And that's it. And then at the end, John falls over because John's funny and that's what John does. I like the song. People think it's kind of granny music and it fits in with when I'm 64. But I think it's it's closer to being a 60s pop song than that. I think it's a, it's a nice, catchy, straightforward 60s pop song. Uh, I think one of my favourite Paul songs of the era. It's got a good melody. They're going for a Busby Berkeley sort of thing, I think, but without the budget and with less exciting choreography. They're just sort of standing still and swaying a bit. <laughs> there is quite a bit of swaying. I wrote down before I watched the documentary about the making of it that it seemed to be filmed in a an aircraft hangar because it looks like this huge space, which is also quite dreamlike. And it turns out it was filmed in an aircraft hangar, so I was right. It was filmed on the same airfield that they shot um, the walrus. So, so they, they let them go inside one of the hangars. You do tend to know your stuff about things like that. It's a, a nice end to the film. And like we were saying earlier, I don't know if it's the most suitable ending. It just kind of like the whole action stops and then this random thing happens and then everyone runs towards camera and that's the end. So it, it peters out a little bit. It doesn't really reach a climax. It's a perfectly nice sequence and a, a really very decent song, I think. And the magicians come back. Yes, they do. They make an appearance at the end and... John's the voice John's voice ever says I told you yeah that was a magical mystery tour and then they play hello goodbye and they play a bit of hello goodbye yeah the end so my thoughts in summing up I think it's good for what it is but we also know the Beatles were capable of so much more as well particularly going from their 1966-67 Christmas discs that they made which were these very strange, surreal little sketches that seem to go nowhere and require sort of entertainment. In the recent heavy fighting near Blackpool, Mrs. G. Evans of Solihull was gradually injured. She wants, for all the people in hospital, plenty of jam jars by the Ravelers. And here it is. Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. For you, baby, just for you. Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. And how old are you? Thirty-two. Get away. I am. Well, what prize have you got your eyes on? I have. Ooh. Well, you've just won a trip to Denver and five others. Oh, thank you. And also, wait for it, you have been elected as independent candidate for Paddington. Oh! Look after yourself. Get one of us for your trousers. Get one of us for your hair. So I think if they had actually sat down, worked out a structure, worked out a proper script, my personal view on it 
is i like it for what it is but i think that the beatles had the talent and the capability to do more with the idea and there are other things which are are quite magical mystery tour in their feel speaking of the bonzos they filmed some stuff for um pathé news some clips of them doing the head ballet and the equestrian statue which are really nice and surreal and fit right into the whole magical mystery tour any summing up thoughts on magical mystery tour it was a little bit magical quite mysterious they went on a tour that's that i really liked it i was expecting a lot weirder than i got but i'm kind of okay with that you know there were a lot of other things that i did get that i really really loved i was expecting you to both hate it and hate me as a result of making you watch it (laughs) no i liked it I, i really loved the magicians they were my best bit the magicians and auntie jessie they were the best bits i really liked blue jay way i'm glad i found a new Beatles song that was great I watched the Ringo the Actor little interview, which I thought was just so, so sweet. Isn't it? (laughs) I mean, honestly, say what you like about Ringo Starr, but the fact is, he's just lovely. (laughs) So that was the Beatles. Uh, Thank you ever so much, everybody, for tuning in and for listening to us ramble about our favourite foursome from Liverpool. The Searchers. Uh, We will be back next week, and next week is my turn. And uh, I will give you a little clue as to what we are going to be looking at. (coughs) Have a guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's it. That's my clue. Uh, Oh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Very good. good. Very good. Do you like that? that. (laughs) Have it anyway. Um, Yes, if you would like to get in touch with us, (laughs) you're more than welcome to. Our uh, Twitter account is at retro underscore tube. Our email account is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. We are always happy to hear from you. We are great at getting back to you. Honestly, just, you know, get in touch with us and find out. We'll, uh, We'll prove ourselves right. That's all I've got to say. Uh, How about you, Adam? Don't breathe on me, Adrian. (laughs) 